Hey, and welcome to episode 58 of the Thoughtcast. I'm your host, Philip Elke, here in northern Minnesota, joined today by two wonderful guests. My brother, Dawson, coming in from southern Minnesota, and Jody Pulaski in Georgia. Hey, how are you guys doing? In where's Jody today? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I'm back in Georgia. Even though we're in the pandemic, I guess I have been traveling a little bit more for work, but during the weekdays, I'm usually at home. And today I got to kind of like snuggle on in and relax and watch this movie. So it was really like a nice day off for me. But I was just in Kansas. And then before that, I was in Illinois. So, but now I'm home, Georgia. What is the, oh, Georgia on my mind. (laughs) Hey, Georgia peaches. How is the weather in late October in Georgia? Is it spooky? I wish it was spooky. That's something I miss about the Minnesota. You really do get to like experience the full effect of each season. And down here, fall is just sort of wet and heavy. <laughs> it's not really crisp and light and red and colors. So it's, it's, it's nondescript, really. It's just kind of bleh. It's pretty wet and heavy where I live too. My apartment has vines on it. And in fact, it's so wet and heavy that you can hear massive chunks of vine leaves falling off in just a wet, heavy thud outside of my walls. Um, uh, so it, that was a wonderful view from behind the, the black cauldron is playing in front of me on, on my TV and then out my window, it's just ominously gray and these vines are turning like reddish black and crumbling off the brick walls of my apartment. And so Philip, you picked a good one for today's episode as Halloween as Disney has to offer. Yeah, you could say that, um, especially from the canon of the Walt Disney Animation Studios films, of which this is the 25th Uh, And it is indeed The Black Cauldron from 1985. Yes, conversation about animation today on the Thodcast. And uh, we thought we'd save one of the spookier films uh, made by Disney Animation uh, for just the occasion. Um, And what a treat, really. We've been sort of covering some films from Dustin, as you eloquently put it to me over text recently, the dirty early 80s. Uh, I like that description. It's the very dirty apt. early 80s and the satanic panic of <laughs> the mid of the whole decade. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Is there is there an animated film out there intended for children that has more blatantly terrifying imagery than in this Walt Disney film? Um, well, The Nightmare Before Christmas. That's not Disney. No, this one's spookier than that. Right? Uh, the and only thing is, I yeah. think that comes close is that in the movie Fantasia, there's like the the like devil's oh, mountain yes. scene. And that's like yeah. the only thing that I think comes close to this dark kind of graphic mm-hmm. living dead feel. Yes, yeah. that great way to put it. I think this... That 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 final portion of Fantasia is yes. like just everywhere in this film. Yeah. That's kind of the the tone. Fantasia is definitely not aimed, you know, specifically at kids. Uh, you know, more so just general audiences. And then this, um, you That's know, true. it has awesome. this. This feels like it's trying to appeal to younger audiences, but like older kids, like uh, teenagers, perhaps. And then 
yeah, you've got, um, well, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas is stop motion animated, not technically part of the uh, Disney Animation Studios canon. Oh, and my, yeah, when I asked if there was something out there that equaled this, I, I didn't specify it had to be Disney. I did mean in all of animation. And yeah. Uh, it is Disney. It wasn't released under the Disney banner. You're huh. kidding. Okay. Touchstone. Weird. Because of its spookiness, do you think? Do you think yeah. this movie made them kind of say, ah, oh, we don't really want a lot of spooky animated movies under our that could Disney be. name anymore? Um, and yeah, because um, yeah, because it could have uh, it could be a turn off to parents. And then, I mean, with the success though of Hunchback or not, <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um, the <laughs> the nightmare, the nightmare before Christmas. Um, they. Um, you know, they have fully co-opted that film into the Disney uh, pantheon because, you know, it's all over the parks. It's all over Hot Topic. I mean, Disney can't get enough of the Nightmare Before Christmas, of course, uh, versus the, the Black Cauldron, which in many ways it's kind of been forgotten. But, of course, as some of these dirty early 80s films want to do, they... Um, develop strong cult followings and uh since the release on home video which didn't come until 1998 uh the black cauldron has definitely seen plenty of revitalization i've in fact seen it in theaters dawson you mentioned how cool it would be to, to see this film in theaters which i have um and indeed it is is a treat uh yeah, that that the opening of this film. Um, if I think that, yeah, the your first note here. Um, it it opens so strong, so glorious and strong. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I, hold on, am, am I am I jumping ahead, or was there something you wanted to to Who? talk? No, about I think we... jumping in at the beginning is like perfect because, like Philip said in his notes, it's this kick-ass narration that really just starts it right on the tone of what the movie's going to be like yeah. and they're telling this sort of mythical story of where the black cauldron came from and i had forgotten about it but yeah. it's soaked in the soul of like a demon yeah you you sit down to watch this disney film <laughs> and <laughs> this green gray black mist appears on the screen with ominous music in the background and then uh a looming voice says um can i just read the whole opening like a paragraph it's short and it's sure. it's just yeah if you haven't seen this film and you're like oh a disney movie you know like what how what and in your best narrator voice <laughs> who it sounded it was like a christopher Plummer, like one of the graybeards <laughs> i'll, I'll was find it. it um uh, yes Oh, you said you'd find it. Or do you, do you want, <laughs> while so you're good. doing your narration. Oh, while I'm doing. Okay, sure. I'll I'll go ahead and I'll try the iron gear. All right. Legend has it that in the mystic land of Pridane, there was once a king so cruel and so evil that even the gods feared him. Since no prison could hold him, he was thrown into a crucible of molten iron. There, his demonic spirit was captured in the form of a great black cauldron. For uncounted centuries, the Black Cauldron lay hidden, waiting, while evil men searched for it, knowing whoever possessed it would have the power to resurrect an army of deathless warriors, and with them, rule the world. And so there's lightning, and it's gray, and it's black, and you see this, this uh, 
just rusty black giant cauldron with this kind of grotesque looking grotesque looking and it's got this embossment of a of an evil king's face on it and then uh the beauty and the beast uh little town music comes in and we we uh transition to a shot of a lovely village in a valley um and happy disney music yeah there's like butterflies and like flowers growing and this kid in a yard you're like oh oh, what was that (laughs) massive tonal shift uh super dissonant um and which i kind of love uh but no yeah it's i just can't believe that in a in a disney animated film the words demonic spirit are uttered. Um, I just, it's so, it's so different. It's so unlike anything they've done. And that's why like for all this film's flaws, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with it. And I love it because it is such a step of faith to even like try it, to make it work. And then um, it, it just, it keeps getting, it keeps going from there. Um, and I think we'll probably talk about a lot of the things that we think work or don't work about this film, but right off the bat, like, um, this idyllic countryside cottage shot, you know, following the prologue, seems like it could be swapped out with several other shots from other Disney films and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. No, no. Very Sword <laughs> in the Stone or very uh, Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty was one of the, the heaviest, yeah. like they wanted to capture that sense of magic with this film. Um, and I think in some ways they succeed, but I would say just overall that like, cause we talked before the recording started about, you know, why did they try to make a film this dark? And you guys were saying they wanted to capture that they wanted to see if they could rein in kind of a, an older audience, um, but also make a film for kids. I think if they would have had a more even tone throughout the film, like that might've worked better. Instead, this film really does feel like sometimes you have just outright graphic demonic horror and then super happy-go-lucky whimsical disney stuff um it's like really uneven um yeah kind of fun and charming but (laughs) i think you can feel that like almost right off the bat where it's like they want to go really dark but they like rein it in because in the very first scene with taryn like being like i want to be a warrior i want to fight and he's like well if you fight in a war you might get hurt and in my head i'm like you mean killed right but since it's a disney movie oh like you might burn your finger in the war like and i love that he he burns his finger on an ordinary black cauldron in a proper (laughs) place i i thought i think there's a big opportunity uh, a missed opportunity here where you have the the shot of the of the big evil black cauldron in the establishing narration and that they could have like just like panned backward and then have it transition to the ordinary cauldron in the fireplace and then have Dalvin like walk in front of it and ramble about real life oh that would have been really Mm. creative yeah they maybe tried that I almost wonder if they because they by by having Tarin touch that black cauldron and burn himself on it that that was intentional clearly like some kind of foreshadowing it's very light but um, what other color would a cauldron be? <laughs> you know, I feel like they're all black. <laughs> um, but but it depends on what it's made out of. Probably, like, are there bronze cauldrons? I, well, there's there. Yeah, I, I would imagine. But also, it's not explicitly referring to the color black. It's also you know, um, the soul metaphorical. Yeah, uh, and then John Huston is the actor who provides the narration. 
Oh, and um, f- and fun fact about the magic sword, actually, uh, not to jump ahead, but uh, Dernwin is it's called, and it's mm. uh, so and this is a sort of like a goodness and light, and it's actually called Dernwin, the Black Sword. <laughs> oh, fun. yeah. So they take that that mythical like the mythic idea of of you know soul blackness, and they and they just I don't know they like paint it differently. I think that's fun. And yeah, he uh, John Hewson was in a lot of films um, in like the 40s through the 80s and he was the voice well i guess his first credit here is 1929 uh but um he was the voice of gandalf in the rankin bass lord of the rings films those are the animated ones back from like the 90s right that's right uh specifically the hobbit and the return of the king um and i think in between those two there was a Ralph Bakshi, Lord of the Rings, which sort of served as a proto-sequel to, or sort of, uh, I guess, uh, it, it was intended to be kind of a sequel to The Hobbit. And then he never made another Lord of the Rings film. So Rankin-Bass went ahead and did Return of the King, I'm guessing, is how that all worked. <laughs> I always forget uh, that the I, I confuse Rankin-Bass Rankin and Ralph Bakshi Hopefully not. That isn't crazy because they do have a similar ring, and they made like the, they were working on the same kind of movies at the same time, and they look even similar. Um, not really, yeah. very necessarily, but it's weird that Rankin Bass did The Hobbit. Ralph Bakshi does Lord of the Rings, and then Rankin Bass comes back and does Return of the King. That's like super bizarre. Mm-hmm. And Houston did not voice Gandalf in the Bakshi Lord of the Rings. Um, that was William Squire. But I, I think they're all intended to be sort of connected, more or less. Um, and, yeah, just simply because Bakshi didn't return to do any more animated Lord of the Rings. Well, um, and how nice to be like, oh, this saves us a lot of work. Ralph Bakshi already made this animated Lord of the Rings film. Mm-hmm. We don't have to make our own now. We'll just make a sequel to other people's work. <laughs> I think that's basically how it was. Yeah, wow, and the, the Rankin best. I guess none of these... Uh, wait, no, the Bakshi Lord of the Rings was theatrical. Um, I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it had a $4 million estimated budget, grossed uh, around $30 million worldwide. I mean, that's a return. decent wow. return. Yeah, I mean, I wonder... Uh, he may be just uh, animation such a funky beast um, he maybe thought he'd just uh, move on to other things you have some John Hurt cross- crossover <laughs> because John Hurt is our villain in Black Cauldron and he played uh, Aragorn in oh. the Bakshi Lord of the Rings Okay, I don't know much about the animated Lord of the Rings saga I've never seen it I've just seen clips and, look yes. up the Saruman clips they'll I, knock you right out <laughs> i've seen the hobbits a couple times um but yeah not not lord of the rings so that'd be fun to explore at some point um also the career of what ralph bakshi uh which we briefly mentioned last week during the rock and rule episode um but he was sort of a, a person who was considered for involvement in the black cauldron and has sort of a animation that's targeted towards an older audience as well. His aesthetic is much more aimed at adults. Talking about and another further animation crossovers and, you know, weird styles meant sort of for adults. Tim Burton did provide um, some concept art for this film. 
Um, and I don't think he got very far and thank goodness because his concept <laughs> art is awful. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a very, it's as Tim Burton as you would hope that it would be. And you see a lot of the themes that he drew for these characters show up in later editions, but they're just hideous. Everyone is hideous from Tarn and Alanwi is the most hideous of all. She's more hideous than the Horn, Horn King. Okay. Um, and Gurgi is truly a sight. Um, I never saw, but, yeah, I haven't seen any of his concepts, but I did read that. He had like a face hugger concept as one of the Horn King's minions. I'm sure he did. Seemed kind of inspired by the face hugger aliens, uh, you know, talk, alien. Talk about a, a molten iron crucible that this evil king was uh, was thrown into. Um, this era in animation, and Philip, you know a lot more than me, but this dirty early '80s seems like this crucible of animation because it seems like it was around here that there were so many studios and companies and individuals who were really boiling all together and then they kind of explode and finally solidify in their own brands and in their own studios that would eventually make their own like lines of, of IP. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's a, a, a fair statement or, you know. This was the birth of sort of pop culture overload the modern day of nostalgia filmmaking really began in the 1980s. And you see that really um, harnessed in things like Stranger Things or It, you know, the hearkening back to this era that's rife with uh, pop culture and nostalgia. Um, and before the 1980s, there just wasn't quite the same fervor for this type of thing. Um, but yeah, in the 80s were the introduction of just very innovative new filmmaking technologies so that really allowed audiences to enter, you know, mainstream audiences to enter into these worlds that, um, you know, you would have had to have been a, like a fan of tabletop gaming or fantasy novels to really wrap your head around, I think, what a lot of these artists were going for. Yeah, well, all of that, like, especially in, in terms of fantasy, all of the, like, Tolkien and Lewis, and then Lloyd Alexander, uh, the um, an American C.S. Lewis, I, I think it's, it is fair to call him that, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, like, Tolkien's fantasy had had time to sort of, um, oh my gosh, uh, what is the word? Uh, gestate? Gestate, uh, is pr exactly, in, in the minds and the culture of people, so that the 1977 rolls around or 79 i think when dungeons and dragons was first released mm -hmm. and that was this big like here's all of this um creative um i take i take all the joseph campbell i take all the fantasy i take all the myth and i and i package it in a game for people to play with and make your own adventures and quests now mm -hmm. like you don't have to write a book or you don't even have to you don't have to read a book now you can just now you can be that character now you can yeah. And video games are, are a logical step forward of that now yeah. in, in the modern day. But yeah, because this, this movie one... feels like it was almost intentionally Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, you've got all the classes. Yeah. Um, anyway. Didn't Dungeons and Dragons get sued at one point because they tried to use hobbits? It something? did, yeah. Okay. There were a lot of uh, blatant um, Tolkien words uh, and names for things like Ents and Hobbits uh, sure. that he had invented. Although he didn't actually invent hobbits. Hobbits, you know, it is one of those millions of words for fairies or goblins that was around in the Middle Ages. 
Um, all of like J.K. Rowling's names, like Hinky Punk, you know, that, that I just assumed, oh, J.K. Rowling, you're so imaginative. You invented red caps and Hinky Punks. It's like, no, those, are, those existed in the middle medieval times because people yeah. were wildly imaginative back then. But uh, Jody, did you get a chance to check out Rock and Rule? All I did was listen to the podcast about it, the thoughtcast about it, but I haven't watched it yet. Okay. Yeah. The actual movie. Times, I don't know but, if that will do but, it. But, but you did, uh, you, yeah, we did the podcast on Secret. Yeah, Game. I don't know if you guys convinced me that I should watch it, though. Oh. <laughs> no, was... no, I, I'm going to see it. Oh. I'm going to see it. Yeah. We fail. Well, maybe you'll like Nelvana's follow-up to their rock and roll. What was their immediate follow-up? I didn't check too much. Their immediate follow-up? The film that outgrossed Black Cauldron in 1985. Care Bears. Care Bears. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh. Yeah, they did a whole bunch of, you know, basically early childhood animation uh, or very kiddie style animation to make up for the blow that was Rock and Rule. $9,000 they, they made for Rock and Rule. All right, yeah. do Care Bears, fine. <laughs> and they're still around to this day. They really recovered after that. Did they invent Care Bears? No, they, no, no. They did the Ewoks cartoons, the droids cartoons. So they continue to work on Star Wars projects. Yeah. Well, uh, what did Disney do to recover from this one? Because this one was like a financial question. kind they, of flush for them. They had, yeah. This was four years after their previous feature, Fox and the Hound, and they the didn't t- have an animated film between then. No, the this two was supposed to be earlier, but. Yeah, the two credited directors on this film are Richie Rich, <laughs> uh, no, Richard Rich, and Ted Berman, and uh, the, they were credited as directors on Fox and the Hound, along with one other guy who had retired and perhaps was sort of ousted, along with some of the people, you know, the leads on this film, who I think um, were sort of shown the door when when this film ultimately failed pretty miserably uh, joe hale was a producer on this uh you know on the black cauldron he um i don't think he really went on to do any more disney films so yeah it, it was a major reshuffling but you had john musker ron clements working on the great mouse detective concurrently with the black cauldron because they left black cauldron to work on mouse detective right yes and mouse detective came out just one year after black cauldron and black cauldron was originally scheduled for a christmas 1984 release but it you know got <laughs> it would have gotten a pg-13 if released in its original form merry christmas here's a demon and an army of the dead to haunt your christmas yeah. dreams oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> there's some santa clausy elements in this film um anyway. uh, yeah it had to get pushed um and and i wonder if in that time they probably did a fair amount of corrective animation which probably blew blew up the budget yet again to this exorbitant $44 million figure that I'm seeing in most places, uh, even though the film was originally budgeted for $25 million. Um, and yeah, it's, it's only 80 minutes long. Credits hit at an hour 16. Um, it's the first animated film 
most likely to have been brought into an actual editing bay, like a live action film editing bay and had uh, sequences physically cut out of it. I, yeah, I, and sorry if everyone that all I've read is the, the Wikipedia, but I don't know where else to find jewels like this. But the idea, the image of Jeffrey Katzenberg saying, fine, I'll do it myself and running into <laughs> an editing bay and ripping with the, and then someone having to run in and stop him and go, no, wait. <laughs> I just can't imagine being one of the artists that was like working on these scenes for like years, like what was it like 2.5 million images like made up this movie and like having your like work be like the part that they're like snip 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 nah like <laughs> so awful. I, it would be pretty I, tough but there's quite a bit and honestly like i saw some of the animation that was cut from this just before coming on the show and it's nasty uh, those those boils that appear on like the skin of this oh victim. the characters the, mm -hmm. yeah this animation of a character turning into basically one of the um undead the the cauldron born the cauldron born <laughs> it's like the dragon born um and i imagine because in the final version of this film the undead creatures are basically just skeletons but i think there was a version where they were like these fermenting rotting corpses um which would have just been pretty extreme for anyone you know under the age of 12 i would say <laughs> oh but kids were ready for it because it was 1985 and guess what blockbuster <laughs> children's film came out one month before the black cauldron gremlins return to oz oh perfect <laughs> That, like this is that corpse, did that have skeletons like skeletons <laughs> uh the scarecrow is scarier than any skeleton in return to oz um i've seen it it's pretty weird too that that falls under the 80s grit i think yeah, yeah that i i think it's kind of like a, a it seems like a, a sort of capstone of that of the dirty early 80s where it just is it's Grimm's fairy tale, but without the, like, they just were like, all right, you know, it's, it's, it's dark, it's grim, it's disturbing, it's unsettling, it's uneasy, uh, it's not clean or polished, and, and very uncanny. Um, I mean, I um, think with this, it, you have to kind of realize that the, even the cutest character, which I think, like, Gurgi is supposed to be kind of like this fluffy-ish cute thing, but, like, even right. the cute character, the comedy character, is pretty, like, mangy you know yeah. what i mean even even though the cute character is not cute philip you had you had some notes about, about well, gurgi. and jody you said you, you thought you did like him and you thought he was I, cute. I like gurgi i always remember liking his little uh voice and i'd, I'd always say oh i want my munchies and crunchies <laughs> like you know i i thought he was kind of funny how he sort of was oh we'll be friends forever bye that kind of personality i thought yeah. it, i thought it was really cute growing up and i still like him now but i don't necessarily yeah. think he's cute like i don't want a stuffed animal of gurgi to sleep with that night you know this, as a kid you know, this movie has <laughs> to cram a lot of exposition in little time and so the characters don't get a ton of development um but on the subject of inculcating children into sequences of very scary gory imagery uh, i mean you had 1981 you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which almost every 80s kid saw. That was yeah. such a massive success. And it had, you know, very scary sequences. Um, and then the Temple of Doom, which was 1984. 
uh, Ghostbusters, also 1984. So, I mean, you had stuff like this um, that, you know, wasn't necessarily being marketed purely to adults. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, there's something about the <laughs> the image of like someone getting just totally deformed by what amounts to like burn effects yeah. that I that just seems particularly uh, visceral. So horrible. So yeah. visceral. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, in a in an animated film like this too, where you, you know so a lot of it does feel very traditional Disney um, fairy tale and, and lighthearted. Um, but yeah, like, you know, you have some of those designs of characters that s seem a little odd. I think Gurgi, like he's, he's an annoying character. He also just doesn't look great. Um, he, he's like a dog thing. Your description was hilarious. And you pointed out something that I've always wondered, like, what is it about his face that's, that's bothering me yet familiar, but I can't put a finger on it. <laughs> He's you got this it. mangy pedophile mustache. Yeah. <laughs> Got a pedo stash. <laughs> I, I I do find Gergi cute. I I and I, I really like his. Is that my clicking? I don't know. Oh, I'm so sorry. My heater is like trying to. It's not too bad. You can't hear that clicking in the background. I can hear it, but it's it's. If there's nothing you can do about it. It's fine. Okay. I think with the characters, like with Gurgi and with Henwin, it's like they created these characters and like, okay, like we want Henwin to be cute. Let's put three eye eyelashes on Henwin and we want <laughs> Gurgi to be kind of weird. So yeah, let's put this creepy mustache on it. Yeah. <laughs> they just kind of threw on those elements to make sure we knew. His description in the book is, is pretty vague. Um, he's got, he's described as having long arms uh, and like, and he's described as being dirty and smelly and having matted fur. Like he's a furry creature. Um, so he's like, really, he is sort of detestable, but his personality um, is, is adorable. And he's, he talks in the books exactly the way they, they nailed that in the movie, crunchings and munchings and smashings and crashings and, um, Kind he's, of like a toddler, like his, yeah. the way he speaks. But Do they say what he is? No, no, there's no, he's, he's just Gurgi. I kind of thought he was like a dog or like a raccoon type thing. In the, he, yeah, I mean, he looked, they tr obviously went in sort of a dogish direction, like a, a bipedal mm -hmm. dog. Um, but no, in, in the book, he, you don't even really get a good idea for how big he is. Um, so there's a lot of different art ideas of what he may or may not look like. And now were these books that this movie was based off of, were they like chapter books? Or are they like picture books you're remembering? Because I've never seen the books or heard of the books with this. I, yes. And, and to me, that is uh, a testament to a, a greater tragedy, which is that um, The Chronicles of Prydain by Lloyd Alexander, which came out in the uh, late 60s, I believe, um, are, they're, they're one of my top favorite fantasy novel series of all time. Um, they are chapter books, and there's five of them. And uh, he won um, the American Library Association Award for the first novel, The Book of Three, and then the second one won the, a Newbery, the Newbery Award that year. Um, and I think two of the books in the series won Newbery Awards, and then the final book won some really prestigious things. So they were really, uh, I mean, recognized and critically acclaimed right when they came out, um, and that helped them get steam enough to, like, they were market, successful in the market and critically acclaimed, but 
have gone on to be uh, quite underrated, I think. Like, not uh, lots of people, it's weird. Like, lots of people have read them and know them, but also lots of people don't. Like, far less know this series than know Narnia or Lord of the Rings. Um, but British critics actually, they did, um, uh, they did regard him with the same accolades as uh, yeah. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. So that was a, a huge honor for him. Um, it's a, it's a, and I think it's well-deserved. I mean, it, uh, so though these five books, fantasy novels, it's America's first high fantasy series. Mm-hmm. Um, and does it and- follow Taryn? Is it the, are these five books following this boy? Yes. Yep. Taryn, assistant pig keeper. Taran, yeah. Um, and his story and all the character stories. I mean, I can't, like, I love the Black Cauldron, the Disney film. It, mm-hmm. It's got a lot of flaws. Cannot stress enough how gregariously different from the books it is. Um, and, I mean, it, it nails really interesting things, like, here and there. Um, and it captures a lot of the right spirit. But really, I mean, Lloyd, Lloyd himself, uh, Mr. Alexander, the author, he said, um, first, I just want everyone to know that the movie and my books are, are not similar in any way, and that I hope people read my books because I think they're very powerful and deep stories and they're good. Um, but that he didn't enjoy the film. He did enjoy the film. He thought it was, it was fun, a fun adventure. So, so Philip, when that happens, or I guess Dawson, you know, when someone writes a series like that and someone gets so much inspiration from it for the animated movie, do they have to go to him first and like buy the rights to this story or have him direct in some well, way? This is image? what, that's a great question. And I am going to have, I wanted, I wanted to ask Philip about this because, so it, it was uh, Ollie, uh, what, Ollie and Frank. Well, Frank and Ollie, two of the most famous of the nine old men. They optioned the rights to the series for Disney in 1971. So they went to the author or they went to his publisher and they said, Walt Disney Studios wants to option the rights to make films based on your books. Uh, So for this author who was, you know, fairly successful, but like had this breakout fantasy novel to have Disney come to him and say, we might make movies out of your book someday. I cannot imagine what that must've meant to him. Um, But then a decade passes. Well, and they they kind of start working on it during the 70s but then it isn't until the 80s that they're like all right we're gonna make this thing for sure so my question for philip is if these two of the nine old men they were clearly moved by these stories they clearly saw incredible potential and wanted to tell these stories as animated films what happened that they didn't they didn't fully capitalize on that and then there there's the line you said i probably i think before we started recording but um where this was everyone at the end of the day looked back on this and said, this was a huge missed opportunity and a waste of potential. Like we could have, could have had something as legendary as sleeping beauty or as legendary as, you know, whatever. And we missed that. I I just don't think the studio was in a very good creative space at the time. I think they're experiencing a lot of creative stagnation with the end of the tenure of nearly all of the nine old men. Um, Very few were still around. Um, in the Frank and early 1980s. Before this came out? No, uh, they didn't die until like, <laughs> that sounds like a morbid statement. Uh, they, they hung in there until the 90s or 2000s uh, in retirement. I, but like they retired in the 80s. Um, they published The Illusion of Life. Frank and Ollie did. It's the quintessential textbook on Disney animation or I would say animation period. Um, And uh, that, yeah, 1981. And they really 
I think only acted on sort of a consultancy basis after that. Um, and yeah, with, with these artists getting up there in age, um, there were a lot of people kind of working as their underlings who had come up the pipeline and basically just used their seniority as a, a weapon to kind of stifle the newcomers to the art form who are, you know, young and naive and very like, you know, sprightly wanting to push the medium in new directions. And I, I think there was sort of a clash of cultures. Oh, yeah. Between sort of the, the old guard who had grown up in the shadow of the nine old men and sort mm -hmm. of the new fresh crop of uh, alumni from Cal arts and other art uh, installation art, um, you know, schools that were designed to really cultivate talent for the animation medium. And uh, it was just hard to put anything together that really felt fresh. Um, and it's something like the Fox and the Hound, you know, it was based on a fairly dark and sort of morbid source material. And it, it lost a lot of its substantive uh you know dramatic teeth during that conception process and uh you know the the end product was um fairly neutered to appeal to younger audiences uh and that turned off people like don bluth uh, and those of his associates who left the studio to uh, strike out on their own um, but I don't know, it's, it's tough because I think a lot of people in the animation industry, they want to be um, pioneering, trailblazing toward kind of doing what the Japanese animation industry does and, and make films that are targeted to all different types of audiences and demographics. Were there voices in Disney who explicitly wanted that who said like hey hey disney what if we didn't only do family friendly films what if we made more and or different yeah. films uh that you know what if we branched out from our comfort zone yeah i mean people like brad bird tim burton don booth i mean these these people would have loved to see to have seen um more of that type of thing um but they also didn't want to lose the soul of animation either and and just turn it into another kind of cynical um, just content uh, grind house. They, I, and I don't think anyone really specifically cited, you know, Japan or anything like that, but um, you know, no artist wants to feel censored or, or inhibited. Um, so there were just a lot of conflicting philosophies yeah. And I, I, I think, get the, oh, oh sorry. No, no, I was just going to say like to echo that, like I read a good quote again when I was going through IMBD um, and uh, it was the editor, author, Arthur Schmidt. And he was kind of saying, it's like when you take a piece of wood and you're trying to make a fine piece of furniture and some people are whittling at it and other people are sanding it and you're trying so hard to make this like perfect thing, mm -hmm. but you, you do so much editing and so much work on it that you almost have like nothing left and there's no more wood to reshape anymore. So I think, with that quote, he was saying like, they all had like good intentions with this movie, 
but because they weren't all on the same page, it just, it, they never like hit that note of excellence with it. That, yeah, I really get the sense that that's kind of what happened in this film. And with what you were saying, Philip, it, it feels like this botched hybrid of so many different ideas come clashing together over one project with, you know, the old, the old guard who optioned it, who clearly saw in, in the source material something that really inspired them, something they thought was moving and would make a beautiful uh, story fit in with Disney's tradition of, of fairy tales, um, but that it would, I, cause I wouldn't be surprised. This is just conjecture, but I imagine some of the old guard and the people making those fairy tales after they had done so many fairy tales were maybe looking at stories like the Lord of the Rings or Narnia and saying, what if we moved on, moved from fairy tale and maybe made like a fantasy epic? Cause that's, that's a different thing from, a, from a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, but that Lord of the Rings was already being done. And I, and Narnia, I don't know what was going on with that at the time. I know Lewis didn't want live action films to be made by any means. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure about animation. Um, but then here was this American property that had just come out that was wildly successful. And they saw, and they saw in it, um, and if you read this, you'll know they just they saw in it everything that like Disney is about stands for is good at. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then the newer folks are coming in and they're wanting to be grimmer or darker. And it's mm-hmm. the it's the late 70s. So you've got um, well, I mean, it's the, it's the 70s. So you've got uh, the rebellion culture and uh, communism and uh, the Iranian hostage crisis and the malaise of Jimmy Carter era and the the fuel crisis and all these dark, but then you have Star Wars erupt yeah. in the middle of that. So they're like this old high, fairy tale, high fantasy idea. That's why they got the rights for this thing. But then, but then Star Wars happened and they're like, oh gosh. So we have this fantasy fairy tale thing and we have Star Wars and we want to go dark with it and we want to change what we're doing as a, as a company. And we went yeah. so, so many cooks and, and it just, it, it's, it's a botched product. The, but yeah, early 80s saw Oh, God. Well, the early 80s saw a glut of fantasy and science fiction films uh, made possible through new technology. And um, let's make yeah, Conan for Audiences kids. realized, or uh, filmmakers realized there was a, a strong audience for, for this type of thing. Yes. Yeah, so they're, they're trying to push more for, for something that had that comprehensive feel of like a Star Wars with charming characters, believable stories. And, and these fantastic worlds. But yeah, Jody. Uh, but the old guard optioned it before Star Wars. That's what's so interesting to me. Cause like- Well, I think you're right, Dawson. I think yeah. they saw these elements. They saw the dragon and they saw like the princess and they saw the fairies. I haven't read the books, but I'm assuming mm-hmm. they saw all these elements and they're like, this is right up our vein. Mm-hmm. How could we fail with something with these elements? Mm-hmm. And I think that's why this is one of the movies that I most wish they would remake because I think there's so much potential in it that just wasn't tapped into. Right. And I wonder if they wanted, if when they optioned it, they thought, I mean, Disney hadn't done a series, but there are five books and they optioned all five. And so Black Cauldron, what it, what, what we got was a, they combined the first two books in the series into something that ends up looking nothing like either. Um, And Philip, you have some interesting notes about, uh, just things in the in the film that like either don't make sense or are or weird and nine times out of ten, probably ten times out of ten, I'm I would say that the book handles it completely differently. Um, namely the the sacrifice at the end, which you you pointed out in your notes, like how is that like that seems like something that should have no take backs. And in the book, it has no take backs. Mm. The witches do not have the power to bring the dead back to life. 
<laughs> it's it's kind of handled in sort of a badass way here because the you know Nigel or uh, what's his name Fleur, Fleur um, we haven't even voice, talked about like the, of, the film like what happens in it um, um, I think it's because the backstory with this one is have, almost is more, as interesting as the movie itself I, yeah Nigel Hawthorne plays uh, Fluter Flam and uh, yeah, he's he pronounced it flam, right? Well, he's got a British accent, so flam. Um, but the, yeah, like the way he sort of um, goads these witches into unleashing their full power, which was kind of a cool element. Yeah, he tricks them at their own game. That's clever. But but it it was uh, a fair bargain, I would say. You know they. The, uh, the witches got the cauldron back, uh, and in return, they they gave something of value. Uh, originally, they were going to offer the sword in return for the cauldron back, but then they were like, "No, we we want Gurgi back." <laughs> of course, you know. You want to know what happens? Was the, in, oh, the, sorry. Yeah, I, tell I us. Didn't I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, what? Well, um, and is okay. So, is the black cauldron? Book one of the Chronicles book of two. Everdeen. Black Aldrin's book two. The book of three is book one. And the Horn King, spoiler alert, is defeated at the end of book one. Oh. Um, the Horn King, he's, a, he's just a warlord in the service of a, of a greater enemy, a sort of Sauron type figure. Um, and he's not expressly an undead or demon. He, he's described as just as this ferocious warrior wearing a, a skull mask with a, a skull antlered mask. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's defeated at the end of the first book. And uh, then in the second book, because it has more of those Lord of the Rings and high fantasy elements of like there are armies and there are, and there are kingdoms of good and evil. There's this really arrogant prince uh, figure who comes in and is he's on the forces of good um and he's he's so arrogant and and always wants and wants to like make sure that he's the hero and he's the one that's remembered that he he throws himself into the cauldron as a sacrifice Hmm. um so you always you always think his arrogance is this like this thing that makes him an a-hole but then he's so committed to that bit that at the end it is like Oh, like he really meant it. Like he It's his own demise. Like he what who is that mythical guy but, who's looking at himself in the lake? Oh narcissistic. He's so Narci- yeah, he's yeah. so narcissistic, it's his own like death. So in his way, like his arrogance is his own is his own downfall. And it's yeah. but it's almost like it's weird it's this weird non pretentious because like he's not like pre- it's not pretense where he's like, I'm arrogant, but then when the time comes, I'm not gonna do what it takes to be the hero. He's like, no, I am so this hero that I need to do. I'm going to, and even though like there's, it, it's really, it's a really complicated, interesting story with yeah. a lot of to- uh, twists and turns where different characters, I mean, Taran, Taran wants to at one point to save everyone, be the sacrifice, but he's prevented from doing so. Mm-hmm. And this other character comes in later and does it. Yeah, but, Taran has a pretty big head himself at the beginning. Yes. <laughs> and How old he, do you think he's supposed to be? Like, I'm picturing like an 11 year old. Like, is that the age where little boys are like, oh, I'm going to fight with this stick and chase the Absolutely is the age. Absolutely. That kind of thing. Because he's sort of, I mean, he's a slender little kid that daydreams about being a warrior or whatever. But when the time comes, obviously it's a little different, but I was wondering what age you guys put him at. So 11. Um, it's a, com- he's a completely relatable character. Um, you know, they may be like overdue. They like go heavy on making sure, you know, who he is like, I want to be a warrior and, but I'm, you know, 
and you're, you're warned, you were warned in the first five minutes that you, you think you want to be this brave warrior, but when push comes to shove, it, it's not going to be what you think it yeah. will be. It's going to so suck. Um, he's very... I would, this and he's probably... Thir- I would say like 13, especially because there's the romantic element that it's like, it's not quite like kids having a crush on each other. It's more like very, very young adults falling for each other maybe i don't know i she's think she's great i love her i think she's just beautiful and i know that yes. they they didn't put any songs in this one but i was saying to ryan as we were watching it i was like i wish they gave her just like a little song to sing or something to make her more of a quote-unquote disney princess because then maybe more people would reference her now because she's not She's not considered a Disney princess in the Disney princess world today. Like no one even thinks of her, but she's really great. She is. Yeah, she's and she's pretty. I really wonder what her song would be. Oh, she's she's beautiful. Uh, she the the Black Cauldron characters have been known to pop up from time to time, very rarely at the Disney parks. Uh, see that that would be great. I don't think kids would really recognize her, no, but I but I would. Yeah, she's very heavily inspired by Aurora, even in her costume and everything. Oh, I could see but. that. Yeah, she's such a like a, a Hermione type character mm-hmm. that I just love. She's bright and chipper and intelligent and and witty. And in the in the book, she's just dynamite. She every she always pulls out these metaphors that like are really unique and complicated, but that leave you feeling you know exactly what feeling she was going for. With I don't know, she's Lloyd Alexander clearly has a gift for metaphor. Uh, as a writer and then he gives that to this character as part of her personality and it's and does she have magic in the books is that what they're kind of referencing in the movie is she she supposed to have these magical elements about herself she has a magic bobble um i can't i can't remember in the books if she has like natural magic that she's able to Mm. wield or conjure she is the one however who takes the sword and carries the sword around when they find it in the barrow um and Taran, when he finally tries to use it he wrenches it out of the sheath and but he's not worthy to wield it and he actually explodes his arm wow. um he doesn't blow he, he burns it basically oh. um yeah so I, I i like that better that because she she keeps it away he keeps trying to use it and she's like no you're gonna hurt yourself <laughs> um because in this in this film it's sort of unsatisfying but the sword does all the work the magical sword um let's tar and be it but you know in, a, in its own way i think that's it's fun like the movie it's like it's so different from the books but then the movie still ends up having a lot to commend it i think it, by the you know throughout um yeah what does the book give Tarn an age i mean i would place him at around 15 his voice actor clearly sounds like a teenager it is he maybe sounds a little his voice sounds maybe a little deeper during some parts of the film not I, uncommon with i think he's 14 15 um yeah. and then by the end of the series he's a man a young yeah man. the books like, yeah. give him time to grow whereas mm-hmm. this little quest i mean is supposed to probably take place over like the course of a week yeah alan yeah. looks like she's maybe 14 or 15 um she is animated by glenn Keane as the supervising animator uh he's the only she's the only character that i've so far noticed on here uh, as given um uh, a credit unto herself and uh, I was trying to find some of the others, but Glenn Keane is one of the most famous anim- character animators from the Disney studios. And he would go on to uh, 
uh, supervise Ariel, I believe. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, just bursting with life. I love the whole animation style of the characters in, in this one. Uh, I think you, you see it in some other Disney films, but where the, all the characters bend their arms out like chicken wings so often <laughs> yes. and then hold their hand up at a straight, like per, uh, perpendicular angle to their arms and hold their index fingers out and they point and jab all the time and they stick their noses in the air. I just love it. It's this really exaggerated um, posing. I just love it. I don't know. I don't know how to. Describe. It looks great. Uh, the movie looks. Um, yeah, El- Elanwi is definitely one of the most appealing, you know, female two D animated characters. We specified a- appeal know. in the last episode, Jody. How it doesn't mean. Oh yeah, no. no, But I was gonna say what in this movie, the one thing that I was kind of like, eh. But again, it's the '80s. Every other female character in this movie is like busty and like almost like a (laughs) promiscuous. Like you see, I mean, you almost like one is like I think there's only like five other like women characters in this movie. There's like a prostitute type. The 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 morbidly obese Esmeralda. Uh, Yes, and then there's the witches and I. And then I think that's it. Like that's all the women we get to see in this. They're one. they're all like tavern wenches, like you'd see yeah. at the Renaissance Festival. Um, yes. Just massive, busty wench wench. <laughs> well, because and then most of the other males you see are these gnarly barbarians that are. Just, I love when Fluter Flam is getting put in the in the. Uh, chains he's being imprisoned and he's like you seem to be an intelligent sort of fellow and then he the bad guy looks at the camera and looks like an absolute hippopotamus with one tooth and (laughs) at him incredulously it's good good i love that part of animation on how they can really go to the extremes with these body types um because it makes the main characters seem very very normal even though uh, they have the big big eyes and like the abnormally skinny legs the the rest of them are so wild that they just look like the average. <laughs> yeah, and then they and they really play with it too because this is uh, also a children's film in which a a man in the form of a frog all nearly loses his life betwixt a woman's bosoms. That's pretty. That's Death a pretty by wild cleavage. scene. I was it's watching so it and I'm kind of thinking to myself. I was like, who approved this one? I mean, they cut out 12 minutes of finalized footage. Why not? Like. Is this the scene they really needed to keep? <laughs> like, I remember that scene sticking out to me as a kid. <laughs> like, whoa. Like, what? Mo- in, in the private I mean, if you're screening. You're going to die. Families. That's the way to die. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, the private screening for families. The mom walked out of the room when the corpses came back to life, but she didn't flinch when the. She didn't stand up and say, okay, like, who. <laughs> we'll just blame it on the 80s. We'll just say. Yeah, you can blame so much on the 80s. <laughs> oh, my word. And Creeper's a weird little animation they have too. He's I love Creeper. Kind of like he is I gorgeous. I a reptile type. He's a so goblin. What is he supposed to? A goblin. Oh, he's a goblin. Yeah, but you're right. Like the I I remember thinking like this is a frog as a kid, but then I grow up and go, oh no, he's a goblin. Okay, they're like, pretty horrible to him. You you do kind of feel bad for him. I love how self yes, I do feel there there's such a great self-aware scene when he he fails again and he's on his way up to report his failure to the big bad guy and he's he knows he's about to get it. So then he just says, No, master, allow me, and proceeds to choke himself. Apology accepted. <laughs> yeah. And Let's then he see. and then the Horn King doesn't punish him because he that 
delay gave him the Horn King time to realize that uh, the failure could in fact be turned to success. Glenn Philip, I Keen. saw in your notes. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say Glenn Keane supervised Ariel. Uh, but then after that, um, the princesses would mostly be given to Mark Hen. Um, well, except for Pocahontas. He was supervisor on Pocahontas. Glenn Keane. Uh, Glenn Keane. But um, he did Beast, Aladdin. Uh, the princes are always more difficult anyways. And he was so experienced that I imagine that was part of the reason. And then the princes he really- are more difficult? Yeah, princes are because they're just they're less um, exaggerated. Blank slates. Know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then he he got to flex his muscle, so to speak, on Tarzan, where he animated the adult Tarzan, um, and then also John Silver. And he actually legend, Glenn. Yeah, yeah. He came out with his first uh, feature film, if I'm not mistaken, as a director. Just um, a couple weeks ago uh, with Over the Moon on Netflix. It's this uh, Chinese animated film, uh, feature film about a kid who wants to go to the moon. Um, it looks very good. I have not seen it. Yeah, October 23rd was the release date of Over the Moon in the United States. And you can watch it now on Netflix. And Glenn Keane was involved? He was one of the co-directors, oh. Glenn Keane and John Cars. Oh, Ken Jong is in this. I got to yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. So definitely check that out. Uh, I remember got... seeing Glenn Keane. I don't know if you guys remember on the VHS of Tarzan, but mm -hmm. there, there's like a clip of him filming his son skateboarding all around, and that's where he drew a lot of inspiration for Tarzan. And I just thought Glenn Keane seemed like the coolest guy because he's like in a skate park like filming his son getting ready for tarzan i didn't oh, realize yeah. he was part of so many projects i so remember watching that and thinking animation had to be the most baller thing ever like these kids are flipping around on half pipes and that's what tarzan's gonna be like <laughs> on his vines <laughs> yeah he developed tangled and his daughter did a lot of the concept art oh, for that cool. uh, father daughter animators yeah um, but yeah, he got sick, so he wasn't able to finish as the director. Is he still? Oh table. yeah, he's still alive. You just and, sent yeah, him to peace. And now he's back and still very active. Um, so interesting career. And uh, yeah, the, <laughs> I want to maybe comment on Richard Rich's filmography a little bit here too, because there's some interesting insights I can draw from from that list of before films. you do jody you were <laughs> going to say something about what philip had on on his in his notes what oh it would it would circle us way back to creeper but um and i was going to ask about it because i don't know if i just blanked out in the movie but you made a little note saying that creeper was collecting corpses for the army of the undead was that just like a guess or did i miss a scene where he's like out there looking for bodies <laughs> so I, I just saw that in the notes and i was like did i miss something with this yeah there's a moment character? where you see Cre uh, creeper welcoming uh, a horse cart that has a covering on it. It's before we're right before we're introduced to Flut Fluter. Is that his name? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Fluter Flum. Oh, uh, fun, fun note about that. Uh, when when writing the series, uh, there were some whether it was the publisher or whatever who wanted him to consider altering the names, but he uh, Lloyd Alexander refused. He was committed to 
writing the Welsh names exactly. He didn't yeah, want to didn't, didn't dumb down the Welsh names for an American audience because he just wanted to maintain their integrity and thought that it also set a tone and captured that sense of mystical otherness but from this other time and other world. Alexander so. is American, you said? Yeah, he's a, he, I think he, well, he's English heritage. And then in World War II, he was in a, um, a spy unit in, in Wales. And that's when he fell in love with the land and then later studied its history and then remembered when he had been there. And so he's a big fan of, of Wales. Um, and those, gonna... Oh, no, no, you go. No, I was going to say all these like amazing writers, they were like involved in the war somehow or whatever. Yeah. Did you just say he was in a bunker or what was he in Wales? Um, so he, his World War II story is pretty interesting. He um, got tossed around to a couple different units. Um, and then uh, finally, he really fit in in a linguistics unit because uh, he learned, I think he learned French and German, like just while he was in training, basically. Um, so originally he was going to be parachuted behind the scenes in France to help with the French resistance. Uh, but then the Normandy landing happened before that happened. So he didn't end up doing that. Um, and they instead stationed him in Wales. And so I think he was working, I don't know exactly what, but it was clandestine and it was linguistics based. And he met like some of the Cherokee, like, um, code, I think some of the code talker people stuff. I don't know, probably a lot of just like message decoding and stuff like that. And, uh, um, but yeah, so he, he didn't see like active, he never saw active combat, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, he was really close to it probably, but, um, and then he, uh, they, they put him after the war, they put him in Paris where he went to the University of Paris and met his wife and wrote a book about her actually. So um, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> he has a pretty extraordinary, I, I, I kind of, yeah, I get very moved when I, learn about this writer especially how like underrated he is and i don't know you know well they have the rights to more um stories if they want to produce them disney, disney does. still i suppose they still yeah. have the rights don't they well yeah. i think they does lost that ever them expire they oh, lost them for a while they reacquired them in 2016 <gasps> oh my gosh they so they're still interest to get them back yeah. oh that's exciting that's really exciting well i yeah can't imagine they plan on developing anything with the same, you know, art style as the Black Cauldron. It'd be neat if they brought back the traditional 2D aesthetic, but um, expensive. Well, they've got Disney Plus now. So, yeah. and probably around the time they knew they were going to do Disney Plus was when they went and got the rights back. And they're like, hey, maybe a show. maybe Or maybe a some type of series, because people really yeah. do, yeah. I mean, our generation with with all these streaming apps, we love like a 10 episode series of things. So maybe they're like, well, let's hold on to these five books and maybe we're gonna draw from it for something later. I would love that. Prudane really deserves a series. I would love if they made a live action film series. I think it, cause it, it really could be like that next Lord of the Rings, that next Narnia, but just people no. aren't, aren't really aware of it. Well, um, my, my theory is they will bring back the traditional 2D, you know, cell shaded. Thank you, Steven uh, Spielberg. You know, yeah. Well, the new Animaniacs series definitely is trying to capture the magic of the Warner Brothers um, you know, Saturday morning cartoon style animation of the 1990s. Uh, but it that does look still very like 
this was rendered in a computer. It's very clean. Uh, it was drawn by hand, certainly, mm -hmm. but it, to me, it didn't look like it had quite the same feel as like the analog uh, days. Uh, but yeah, we'll I mean, I, it's it's still better than nothing. I mean, would you guys rather see a 2D or a 3D animated Black Cauldron series? 2D. Live Same. action. It wasn't an uh, option, oh, sorry, but I would I meant pick... Live action? Okay. Oh, uh, are you talking about like Elsa and Anna, like 3D yes, style? Yes, yeah. Or live action or 2D? I'd pick live action. But if pick, I had to pick okay. between the two animated, I would pick 2D animation, that classic look. Yeah, it would be fun if they kind of went back to exactly the animation style of the original film and just said, we're going to redo that, but better. Because yes. um, I, you know, I love that style. But actually, yeah, I agree with you. If, if it could be anything, I would love to see a, a live action series. Philip, you might know, have, has Disney ever taken an animated movie that they made and reanimated it without making it like a sequel? Fantasia 2000 had oh, okay. the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Sequel. Oh, yep, mm. yep. From the original Fantasia, it was kind of revamped with digital technology. Um, the yeah, I would love to see sort of in the tradition of the Dark Crystal um, age of what, what's it called? The age, age of, of resistance. resistance. Yep. Uh, which so far I don't think is getting a follow up, uh, but it was very expensive. It it was difficult to make. Um, I would love to. They see should just more. release a final a final episode that says, "And then they all died." <laughs> the end. Catch yeah. the sequel, the original film. <laughs> but if they started doing sort of more novelty animation in the style of this very labor intensive two D aesthetic for Disney Plus, um, I, I have to imagine they'll at least attempt something of that of that order. But you know, um, they would have had the budget for it. Maybe 44 million was supposed to be the budget for all five movies, but they, <laughs> they kept going over and over their 25 25 million for this first one. And they were just like, all right, we got to cram it all into one. It's that's over. A really interesting. Sure, actually, <laughs> oh my the money's God. gone. Yeah. Who knows how practical that's, that's... that would be for the studio. But I mean, I, I have to imagine, like Princess and the Frog, you know, it looks great. That, that couldn't have been too expensive. It couldn't have nearly, I could look up the budget for it. I think it was probably somewhere in the $70 million range. But that's still a lot less than, you know, the, their features uh, traditionally cost nowadays in, the, in CGI. $5 million. Oh, What? Uh, is I mean, this the frog? Even, you just looked uh, it well, up. Well, maybe maybe that's the answer for what I typed in, which is Pronsters and the Frog Bidget. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it, it corrected. I love that movie. <laughs> Pronsters and the Frog Bidget. <laughs> uh, um, no, yeah, the Princess and the Frog budget, one hundred five uh, million U.S. dollars, and it brought in two hundred seven million. Okay, and that would have been before marketing. Jeez, that, I mean, it was a very specialized team that they had to put together for that film because um, they just didn't have the production pipeline in place. Um, but Tangled like- Tangled budget was more, it was 260 million. But with Tangled, I think they were starting to create the process of that whole like look. Do you know what I mean? That's why they had to invest so much into, isn't it that right? They, they, invented, they invented a new medium with Tangled. That's why that movie was so expensive.
Well, so Frozen had a smaller budget, is what you're saying? Yeah. But well, it's why like, did The Little Mermaid still... have a budget of 40 million, and then uh, Aladdin had even less, 28 million, and then mm. Princess and the Frog had 105. Well, Mulan had 90. Okay, so maybe inflation has something to do with that. I don't know, but this surprises me that Aladdin is showing a lower budget. P- could be due to caps. Beauty and the Beast lower than that, even the the computer animation um, production system that require just less, uh, you know, hand inking and painting. <laughs> that could be a reason. And I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I would think if I was like going to guess about these animations, it seems to me like if I were to guess that the animated movies with these, all these musical numbers, like Be Our Guest or the Prince Ali song, you'd think their animation budget would be so much higher because those song sequences are always like crowded with characters and life. And this, I mean, I don't think there's a single song in Black Cauldron, right? Nope. Not even really like a background. Oh, do you, do you I already- Thank said. God for that. No, no. Well, okay. That's one of the, from the beginning, one of the things that like, as a young, dumb Dawson, where like, it's not a musical. So that makes it better. Like I had that opinion at one point. Um, that was part of the appeal was like, this is that one Disney animated film that isn't a musical. But I really love what you said about like, if Alon, we had a song. Like what would one it be? little song. I'm I mean, very interested in what that might have been. It's like, you know, in Lord of the Rings, there's this scene where one of the hobbits sings a song in this big castle and the king is like eating these cherry tomatoes at the same oh, time Jody. it's this very like oh, Jody, yes. big moment this could have this movie could have had a moment like that with her it could have <laughs> me and my bobble my glowing ball and could've... my boy with the big sword oh no that's kind of Freudian. <laughs> anyway no <laughs> sorry but I, I actually, if I would say, I'm kind of happy that this one wasn't an all-out musical because it, with the fast pace, I feel like the story really does fly. Like I maybe music would have really messed up the pacing with this yeah. one. Horn King would have had the gnarliest bad guy song of all time, though. My yeah. cauldron born dead army rising. He, horn, he's so scary. Guy. I feel like the in the very beginning, he says he can't wait to be like a god among men or something like this. The things he says are just very cruel. So Brilliantly scary. voiced by John Hurt. And if there's one thing I pride myself in, it's my John Hurt impression. <laughs> yes. If but he's no. dead, you could be the fill-in. You could be the next I, one. Unfortunately, yeah, R.I.P. He's no longer with us. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, oh. <laughs> a long time ago, <laughs> in a faraway land. No. Um, but... I remember every wand I ever saw, Mr. Potter. <laughs> <sighs> this movie doesn't feel that old because I think I watched the remastered version and it's really clear and clean and didn't feel like an older movie. But yeah, I guess someone who worked on it would be pretty old by now because it's been like 30 years. It looks so good. Uh, And like prior to 1990, when it was all done in digital, like it can, a lot of those movies look kind of sketchy, but Mm -hmm. they just did such terrific restoration work on this. I feel that um, it, it, it really does read as something like, you know, a, a Disney Renaissance uh, style film. And I could watch it for any length of time, honestly. I mean, give me a three hour film that looks like this and I'll be happy just staring at it because it's just so gorgeous. 
the uh, but yeah, they they did develop a new process for uh, transferring the sketches to the cells for this film. Um, it's like an intermediary between the Xerox process and the computer uh, computer animation process. Uh, the they brought out the multi um, plane cameras for this film one last time for the first time since uh, the Jungle Book. And then, what does a multi-plane camera do? Like, what's the effect yeah, on it, the animation? Yeah, it allows for multiple layers of elements to be composited on top of each other. Um, and it just creates a much more deep uh, appearance to the, the scene. Um, you have is it, different- So like Photoshop is all about layers, right? Yeah, yeah it, different elements moving in parallax with one another. Um, you said parallax. After uh, Jungle Book, a lot of the films were done using like a photocopy mechanism, which gave them a rougher, more sketch-like look. And that could be cleaned up. And I think eventually they started to clean up those sketchy frames um, in, in later films. But there was a time where that was just sort of the style like Off the top Dalmatians. of your head, like what is? Oh, okay. There 101. Yeah, I was uh, in Aristocats. What's the sketchiest Disney film? Aristocats, probably, because mm -hmm. we just, someone. I was just on a film shoot where it was all colorful, and there were it was a girl's like birthday party, mm -hmm. and there and she was like, "Let's put on a film that we're like watching on the TV. Like, what's what's an aesthetic Disney film?" And they picked 101 Dalmatians, because mm -hmm. um, of like how pink and the Victorian arts. It's very like sketchbook french colors mm -hmm. pastel colors and then like also looks very i don't it has this really classy it's a very classy looking film um but very sketchy at the same time yeah. so yeah it's a it's complicated fox um, and the hound use the same photo process but i think the lines in that film are much cleaner that does look kind of more modern um you know and, and clean um but still not quite like having those perfectly shaded cells like you find in, you know, Rescuers Down Under and afterwards. Um, but yeah, Jody, I, I know you kind of have a heart out right now. Um, I actually kind of do too. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, we, we got to sign off. Uh, I was we do a part mention... two, Black Cauldron part two. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to end it. We've, we've done a fair amount of good expositing on this film um it's fun reminiscing oh, and i'm sad you had some good notes should we <laughs> no, do a lightning okay. round of your good notes yeah run through <laughs> the notes i'm gonna say goodbye to everyone yeah. but they should run through it because i think i mean hopefully yeah. this gives people a good look into the background of these types of movies and what goes into yeah. pulling the storyline together well thanks Gosh, you had so many good notes I did want to comment on all of the uh spin-offs that um one of the directors for Black Cauldron worked on and compare that to sort of Disney's strategy. But um, for now, Jody, uh, do you want to plug yourself on social media at all? Sure. If you guys are wrapping it up, uh, it's, I mean, I have Instagram and it's Jody Pulaski, J-O-D-I-P-O-L-A-S-K-Y. You can follow me or you can just hop back on podcast every week. I'm usually here. Yeah. And if I'm not, they're talking about some pretty good movies. So cool. we'll see you all around real soon. Okay. Thanks for joining, Jody. Great to have you, Jody. Yeah. Um, okay. So the, <laughs> should I talk, make my point about Richie Rich? Yeah. Yeah. Make, and I'm sorry. Yeah. So, like, 
I probably have like five minutes. After Black Cauldron, he went on to do The Swan Princess. Um, yes. So uh, The King and I, I guess from, it was distributed by Warner Brothers, but that was also a Nest feature animation film. Um, I that did about The King and I. Yeah, it was released to theaters. It wasn't just direct to video. But there are like two dozen practically. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. There are a ton of Swan Princess spinoffs, feature length, over an hour long spinoffs, directed by Richard Rich. You lie. What? <laughs> Have you pulled up his IMDb? Uh, um, he's also worked on a bunch of Alpha and Omega spinoffs. Um, but as a director, he has 35 credits as a feature animation director. Uh, I mean, not all of these 35 credits are features. Some are shorts, some are TV series. Um, but <laughs> look at this list. In 2020, The Swan Princess, A Royal Wedding, Runtime. Uh, in 2020? Runtime, an hour and 23 minutes. In 2019, The Swan Princess, Kingdom of Music. In 2018, The Swan Princess, A Royal Mystery spelled M-Y-Z-T-R-E-Y, T-E-R-Y. The Swan Princess royally undercover in 2017. In 2016, The Swan Princess, Princess Tomorrow, Pirate Today, exclamation point. 2015, Alpha and Omega 5, Family Vacation. 2014, Alpha and Omega 4, The Legend of the Sawtooth Cave. In 2014, also Alpha and Omega 3, the Great Wolf Gangs, <laughs> or no, wolf, wolf Games, not Wolf Gangs, although that would be a great pun. Uh, 2014 as well, The Swan Princess, A Royal Family Tale. These are three hour-long animated spinoffs that he... <laughs> and the 2021 is about Japan. They're all Japanese and they're not even the same characters. And... Uh, well, the Odette and what's the other guy? Oh, it's Odette and Derek, but they're, they're dressed like Chinese. They're there. They're the, in all of them. Oh, they're there. Oh, they're guests. They're he guests. A okay. bunch of like Bibles, uh, short films. There's a Muhammad short film. Oh, that looks there can't so awesome. Be. There's, there can't there's be. a Muslim uh, animated film that he Muhammad directed. can't be in it. <laughs> That's awesome. Richard called, Rich should be on someone's death list if Muhammad's actually in it. Oh, oh, yeah, that is interesting. They're typically not allowed to portray. No. Um, but I mean, there are liberal Muslims. Yeah, Muhammad, Muhammad, the last prophet, an hour and 35 minutes long, 2002 uh, animated film about- The, the uh, animation, sorry. The style looks, it looks like those, yeah. those, uh, uh, the theft animated films of like the, uh, the, 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 the um, cheap, uh, asylum. Animated, yeah. Yeah. The asylum, the really cheap, badly animated 3d animated films were like, Oh, Dis uh, Disney's releasing or Pixar's doing onward. Let's make homeward and have market it with the same text and the same style characters, just worse. Or not uh, seeing any characters credited as Muhammad. So he might not actually appear. Okay, as a character so in this thing. Other characters uh, uh, around him. Talking that's probably, I mean, yeah. I mean, even though it's liberal, I feel like that's one of the things that I've consistently heard about yeah. that's consistent the about the face. Trumpet of the swan. Don't show this guy. No, Thank this <laughs> This guy's making it rain. I gotta <laughs> give it to him. Um, <laughs> He's got his property that, 
but it does lend it lends to what could be somewhat of a disquieting trend if disney were to adopt it they could they are literally leaving money on the table by not just milking their fantasy franchises to death and they could do frozen's forever they could make an hour long plus frozen spinoff every year from now in perpetuity and turn a profit and, on that and we could sell <laughs> tickets think. for a thousand dollars and people will buy it and now you're selling <laughs> iphones sell not it. for the rich now you sell it you, want, you made you made uh, for, for frozen anna elsa yeah. and, and now you sell it you want to sell Your it. animators were so preoccupied <laughs> with whether they could they never stop to think whether or not they should. Do we, do we come up with a new idea or do we resell the same idea for more money every time? Um, so no, I, I really have to, reading this, I have to Philip, pay have the to. utmost respect to the mouse, bow down yep. in thanks Thank because you, <laughs> <laughs> they could be just talking about space balls and not money. Swan but, Princess, the flamethrower. <laughs> the kids but, yeah, this isn't about money. We're talking about a ton <laughs> of money. <laughs> so, uh, thank goodness you have your Swan parks, Princess, Disney. Pirate today, princess tomorrow. What? Your, uh, your resorts industry is thankfully making up for the sheer loss in profits that you are sustaining by not milking your franchises to death. So, I applaud you. Check out uh, Twan, <laughs> Swan Princess 2021, Swan Princess Oddity, Odyssey, Swan Princess in Space, Swan Princess X, Swan Princess versus Frog Princess. Swan. Yeah. Now, granted, uh, yeah, the margins on these things might not be that much. It might and be, is he, you know, yeah. Does he do anything on them or is he just, yeah, is I he mean, working he's the director. Yeah, <laughs> he probably can work from home some days. <laughs> Uh, especially with COVID, but Rich, um, what are you doing? Like, I mean, but little girl. So, like, this is what little girls are watching. They're watching the new Swan Princess movie every year. Like, oh yeah, the 3D animated Swan. That sounds like a royal <sighs> tradition. <laughs> so, uh, with that, <laughs> you're so right about like the mouse, though. The the black cauldron the black. from 1985. It was supposed to be 1984, but Jeffrey Katzenberg just about went hog wild in the editing room and Michael Eisner had to step in and be like, stop. He had to... Um, stop, cried the archdeacon. <laughs> he had to be the archdeacon in this scenario of Jeffrey Katzenberg holding the... Uh, this is an <laughs> unholy demon. I'm sending it back to hell where it belongs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he uh, probably jerry i bet you know what i bet like i wish it's i love like that podcast about the animators you listen to where they they then talk they talk about the it's one thing to read a sentence on wikipedia but then to and hear it in their own words what it like was emotionally personally felt like i wonder if jeffrey katzenberger or like during that screening if he just felt the walls closing in around him like he heard the cries of terror of the children he heard the the outrage of the mothers and started sweating. And just like that whole meeting, he was holding his head in his hands and was, and was just like, what have we done? What have we done? We're Disney. Like, this is not, 
we, we can't screw your artistic and like screw your like your work whatever you just this is all wrong it's all wrong and i need to fix it or or, or children are like children are suffering because of me like millions of voices cried out in terror and suddenly it was silent <laughs> he probably he could have had a personal i mean him running into the edit room personally to mess with this it sounds like a mental breakdown honestly he was just starting out at disney so i mean it, it was going through it was a very tumultuous time for the company to say the least so it's no surprise that the quality of their films were sort of suffering at the time and they were fending off several um hostile takeovers at the time as well it, it was could take over disney it was a huge I mean, jump yeah th- there were several attempts um and i'm not going to go into them on this episode that's a different thing but yeah on in the future we'll maybe explore this whole saga of um disney growing pains yeah 1985 black cauldron disney growing pains michael eisner would go on to become the longest serving ceo of disney since uh walt disney's brother roy and yeah, they really turned the company around. And then they would have a, a, another growing pains session uh, in a completely different era, you know, circa 2002. Yeah, well, the ouster of Michael Eisner oh, in a very similar fashion to which he entered. But uh, I, I want to mention the score briefly. What did you think yes. of the music? It was a, it's sort of like hiring Jerry Goldsmith to do Mulan with hi- the hiring of uh, Bernstein um elmer bernstein yeah elmer bernstein to do the score for this he was an absolute legend i i love it i mean it's it i wish it was more iconic like i wish it had more iconic themes and and more recognizable motifs but knowing before watching it that it was the ghostbusters guy hearing all that ghostbuster stuff happen i mean because it even sound without knowing it's the ghostbusters guy it sounds like Ghostbusters, and he uses mm-hmm. that crazy instrument called the on to something that makes the alien wavering sounds. It's very ghostly, very ominous. And then also, there's a lot of really good, like, there, the, well, there's a theremin that is that um, what you're thinking of? Uh, I'm thinking of this bizarre keyboard with like a, an upside down mandolin tied to it. It's, okay. it's really, I read a little bit about it, it's, it's bizarre, but. Um, the, uh, usually the woo is is uh, made by what's called a theremin, but I'm sure there are oh. other instruments that that do something similar. Interesting. Yeah, very very ominous and imposing score, and then but then also very cheerful when it needs to be in triumphant and classic mm-hmm. fantasy. And I, there might even be some like authentic medieval instrumentation in there. At a, the at a theme points, when so. the fairies show up is very jovial and and charming. Yeah, I love the the fairies. Actual child actors like voicing like babies almost voice saying these managing to get these lines out that these fairies are saying. That's really cute. Bernstein did a lot of westerns. One of his last scores was for the film Wild Wild West. And I thought the some of the themes here, like the main theme, was sort of reminiscent of that one western sounding motif that you hear in um Sir Mix-a-Lot's jump on it, you know, the down, 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 down. <laughs> so I thought maybe he was the originator of that theme, perhaps in one of his Weird. Western scores. But no, it's actually uh, a, a pop song called Apache from 1960 by The Shadows, which was then sampled in the Sugar Hill Gang's song of the same name, which introduced the whole uh, jump on it, jump on it lyric. 
and then uh, Sir Mix a Lot did his own take. Just oh, that's simply a legendary titled discovery. <laughs> what an amazing <laughs> song you've discovered. I don't know. It, it seemed reminiscent of that, and yeah, I I, I could just be. Oh, that's such a sick pull that you heard that in this movie. <laughs> I kind of heard bits of John Williams' 1941 theme as well. Um, so, and, and that's a great theme. Uh, 1941, one of Spielberg's lesser known films, but uh, an enjoyable film and one of Williams' best scores. Um, yeah, so thank you, Dawson. Uh, talk thank you, Philip. More Love dirty watching. Early Black Cauldron and uh, love to talk it's great. about. Great, uh, Ellen Wee's one of my top two D crushes, uh, along with Angel. And- she was in my top princess list, and you almost made me get rid of her. You were like, "That's oh, you can't do that never." I'm no, not- she she is absolutely a Disney princess yeah. in the most Thank technical you. of senses. Um, but yeah, the, due to the film's lack of box office success just doesn't quite find her way into the pantheon as much as she should but if they um, do a series they can bring her back yeah let's let's get some the queen i mean if they can turn cuphead into the most successful video game phenomenon of the past you know decade then no 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 philip minecraft <laughs> well cuphead's I, probably up there but minecraft cuphead to me is a phenomenon because of the art style Yes, yes, that's the and only reason it it matters. The ability the to like fully recreate a 2D analog aesthetic through digital animation. But they also did a lot of hand-drawn animation as well for that game. So, uh, you know, it is it is definitely a genuine mix of computer and artists artisanship. And I think people will do that. I think they'll want to do that. And I think it it for so many reasons. And one, not only because the people want it, but because I think artists are gonna want to do it too. Like they've been we we're always on computers all the time. I wanna I wanna I wanna hold a pencil again, Gandalf. <laughs> we'll see with Disney something. Plus. I wanna, yeah. yeah. And like why not? We have it, it, the future will be will hold all kinds of things. A lot of entertainment industry professionals out of work right now. Yeah, give them a pencil, sit them down in front of a desk. Who cares how long it takes? I mean, I might be the kind of person where if you sat me down at an animator's booth I and whipped me with a cat of nine tails, I might succumb before I ever produced anything useful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you never know. I find that I, I enjoy analog analog whatever i enjoy hand drawing more than working on a computer um i know computer like there's that there's a learning curve that i've not mastered with i'm not taking the time to master it on computers but there's something satisfying about moving your hand over a sheet and especially like the in the fun light desks and yeah um, yeah light racing over things and yeah, I th- I imagine it would be very fun. It, it does seem very arduous, but you know, you got in a that team. one semester of, of animation class at, at school when I actually well, it was a full year, but um, when I w- was taught how to animate basically mm-hmm. and just started and tried to do it, it was really liberating and so invigorating oh, cool. and, and fun and, and very stressful. But that yeah. when you even no matter how crude and rudimentary it was, when the moment hit where it was like, oh my gosh, I'm animating. And it's working mm-hmm. and you you go in the, into the camera room and you you photograph all the cells and then you watch it play it, it, yeah. i couldn't believe it it was magical so yeah you know. it's intoxicating that's why people do it despite it sometimes feeling like a sisyphean task 
Just, yeah, uh, can't imagine. Well, that's why you, you hopefully get a team. But yeah, I really got to go. But all right. Um, Talk to you uh, soon. Yeah, Find thank Doss you. Melky on the internet. <laughs> yep, on just Google, Google me and get your plugs. It won't all be right. good. Um, but yeah, thank, uh, thank you all for listening to the podcast. Uh, find us podcast.com. Listen to us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and uh, of course, have a magical day, a wonderful week, warm hugs. And happy Halloween.